uh, our uh, sponsor here, the IAGS, the Institute for the, for the Analysis of Global Security, and Gal Luft, and a number of people that he are working that he is working with, uh, uh, names that you might know, uh, are really making an important contribution to the question of uh, our addiction to oil and how we're going to get off of that. And I strongly applaud the IAGS for all the work that they're doing behind the scenes and in, and in every venue uh, to help us get off of oil. Now, uh, you may have seen from the trailer that um, I did lead a team of some 50 researchers in uh, 100 repositories, uh, everything from the uh, uh, archives of British Petroleum and Iraqi oil to the uh, closed papers of Thomas Edison and um, the papers of uh, Henry Ford. And uh, we obtained some 50,000 documents. And it led us to the conclusion that since the beginning of recorded time, there has never been uh, a generation where uh, fuel and energy and transportation has not been the domain of monarchs and manipulists and, uh, and monopolists. And that's what I did in this work. In order to understand how we got addicted to oil, I didn't just go back to World War II. I didn't just go back to World War I. I actually went back to the beginning of recorded time. I went back to ancient Mesopotamia and to the pharaohs to see just what was the first fuel. I don't know if anyone here knows what the first fuel in the world was. Does anyone have an idea? What was the first? Anyone? Ox. Did, ox? No. Any, anyone else? Manure. Manure. Who, who said water? Ron. Anyone else? Firewood. Who said firewood? Right. It was wood. It was, tim it was, it was timber. Timber, wood, was the basis of civilization because from wood came smelting. And that meant metal. That meant tools. That meant weapons. That meant uh, jewelry. That meant religious objects, uh, coins as a medium of exchange. In fact, wood was more uh, valuable than uh, gold because without wood, there was no gold. You couldn't make gold. And so when the pharaohs and other uh, ancient uh, despots would, um, um, uh, would want to take over property and territory, they wouldn't just um, take over the empty quarter of the Arabian Peninsula so they could have space. They, they, they took over a wealthy, resource-rich land, and that was a land with wood. Okay, um, let's say uh, we'll take an example like Cyprus. Does anyone know what the word Cyprus means? Copper. Copper, correct. That's right. And the reason it's called Cyprus was called copper was because all, although it's basically denuded from wood now, uh, it once was rich in forest lands, and it was used to um, uh, uh, to provide uh, timber for smelting of copper. In fact, I have some of those ancient purchase orders. Uh, <laughs> Letters to the king, letters of Amarna and others talking about the delay in providing timber. So um, it's important to understand that when a slave died, he was just replaced with another slave. But when a tree was cut down, that was 20 to 30 years waiting for that tree to return. And that meant that uh, there was always more and more land to conquer. All right, let's bring this forward to the, uh, to the um, medieval times of uh, England, okay? And uh, everybody here has heard of Robin Hood, right? But does anyone in this room, with all the educated people we have here, know why Robin Hood was hiding in the forest? Anyone know? Wood. What about, <laughs> well, wood. <laughs> that was a guess, right? That was a good guess. That's right, wood. It was illegal to use wood in medieval England. The king owned all the wood. And very few people in the United States know that there was, in addition to the common law, there was something called the forest law. And the penalty for peasants to use wood to cook or to build furniture or tools or was, uh, was execution. And even after the Magna Carta, when they became more humane 
the penalty became uh, blinding and castration. So uh, wood was very important in medieval times. And eventually, as the navies were built, as more carriages were built, as more wood was used, as more construction occurred, uh, there became a timber shortage. And that was the world's first um, uh, fuel shortage. It was the timber shortage in England when it became even more impossible to use wood. And so they went to a substitute fuel. Does anyone know what that was? Coal. Who said coal? Who else said coal? You're both right. Yeah. It was coal. Some people in a certain area also had peat. But um, uh, peat was just uh, en route to, uh, to become coal, just needed a few extra million years. Uh, but coal was, of course, very, very stinky, very, very polluting, and very, very envir uh, environmentally destructive. And what's important to understand is that there arose from coal a complete anti... Do you have a note for, for, for me? C-SPAN needs you to sit in front of the microphone, please. <laughs> We're okay now? Thank you. I never sit when I'm speaking, but I'll do it this time. I'm too nervous to sit. Okay. So, uh, from the pollution of coal came the first anti-pollution movement. There were laws, there were protest marches, there was a demography about cancer deaths, how, uh, how many cancers in this part of the uh, village as opposed to that part of the village, in this part of the countryside as opposed to that based upon the smokestacks. And uh, uh, this is important for us to know because if uh, someone were to tell you that this uh, whole anti-pollution uh, environmental green movement started uh, after the Vietnam War, the truth is it started in the 1600s and it's never died yet. So we need to understand that. Okay, there arose in this coal trade the world's first energy cartel a secret society that no one in the United States has ever heard of, and there are no books in the United States which mention it. And this society is called the Hostmen of Newcastle. And the Hostmen controlled all the coal in England. Now, how did they control it? It isn't that they mined it. It isn't that they dug it out. What they did was they transported it down riverboats. And when uh, and they were involved in a lot of bribery, a lot of skullduggery. There were protest movements about the uh, price. And when uh, uh, the pressure uh, was high, uh, the hostman would increase the supply of coal and the price would go down. Then right after the pressure would subside, like an election or something of that nature, the uh, price would go back up and the supply would be man uh, man man manipulated. Now, uh, the guys involved in um, uh, uh, the transport of coal made it clear to the world that you could own all the coal in England, but if you couldn't move it downstream, you would freeze in winter. And that's important for us now because we understand that you can have access to all the oil reserves in the world, and if you can't get them past the Straits of Hormuz, you ain't got no oil, and that's important. Now, the, the hostmen, um, their industry developed an invention for pumping water out of the uh, uh, out of the coal mines. Anybody know the name of that invention? No one knows. The steam engine, correct. And and, the, and then they put the steam engine on wheels. And what did that make? A locomotive, right? And what was that? Uh, that's a few centuries later. Okay. Uh, anyway, they were now able to transport uh, the uh, coal over uh, land instead of just water. And it opened up great expanses of the country. It opened up England. It opened up the continents of Latin America, of, uh, of Africa, of Europe. It opened up the the United States. It also brought man face to face with a new phenomenon, one that actually had a neurological effect. <laughs> Speed. That's right, you did guess correctly. Have you heard one of my speeches before? No. Okay. I always thought that the railroads were a bigger 
change in human history. That's right. There railroads were. I could think of. That's right. Railroads were important. Why? Because until that time, can everybody see me okay? Until that time, you could only go five to fifteen miles an hour on a horse, but speed allowed man to go 80, 90, 100 miles an hour. Now I want you to think about this. There's an optical impact. Because when you're going 100 miles an hour, and we've all seen the experience, and you look out the sides, everything is a blur. Your surroundings are a blur. You can only focus on what's right in front of you. And since man discovered great velocity, there has been a change from which there has been no, re no retreat. Now, these great expanses re required communication. And a device was invented to communicate across these hundreds of miles. Anybody know the name of that device? Telegraph, telegraph right. And what powered the telegraph? Electricity. electricity, good. And where did they get the electricity? Coal. Coal, wrong. Where did they get the electricity? Where? Water, no. Fire, no. Anybody know? Okay. Batteries. Okay. They got it from little boxes, batteries. And the idea at that time was, I know you all got your blackberries, but the fact of the matter is, in the 1800s, they called batteries wireless. Wireless electricity. Now, of course, when was electricity discovered? Anybody know? Galvani. Galvani. Actually before, but that's a good guess. What does the word electricity mean? Amber. So the ancient Greeks, the ancient Greeks discovered electricity. That's static electricity. There are three types of electricity. There's actually there's four. There's static electricity. The second type is natural electricity, like with Ben Franklin. And the third type is generated electricity like uh, we do in a uh, utility. And the fourth type is uh, when your book makes the New York Times bestseller list. <laughs> or the Washington Post. Okay, so uh, how did we really get involved with, with these batteries? Well, the gentleman here was clever enough to mention Gal Galvani. And as you know, Galvani was dissecting a frog and he cut into the frog with his knife, with his, scal with his scalpel, and he saw a, um, a spark, and he said, goodness, there's electricity in frog's legs. But that was not the case. The actuality was that, there, that uh, the metal of his knife hit the metal of the plate underneath the frog's legs, and from there came the spark, and eventually they were able to capture this and contain the electricity in a battery, and uh, this brought, uh, the science of battery, this started the science of batteries in its most real sense. And it's two metals coming together with a positive and a negative charge. And I can tell you this, uh, that Thomas Edison was asked at the end of his career, we know how electricity works, but does anyone know why it works? And Thomas Edison said at the end of his career, Electricity has always been a mystery to me. And that's important to understand because there's no one on Earth who knows why these subatomic sub particles interact the way they do. They just do. And from their interaction comes the electricity that powers our civilization. So we've got batteries, and they're able to put these batteries to, together. And this was high tech at the time. All right, so it's high tech, that means big corporations. That means stock swindles, that means bank fraud, that means criminal collusion, and all the batteries at the end of the 1800s were renowned for being criminal enterprises. And it was common to call, uh, as many people called batteries uh, a thievery, as people today call software uh, vaporware, if you know what that means. The software just often doesn't work. Uh, eventually, the batteries did work enough to be placed on horseless carriages. And uh, early on, the land, uh, the, the land speed record for a mile a minute was set with an electric car. Now, who knows when that occurred? Mile a minute, L land speed record. Anybody, anybody know? 19 what? 
1907, no. Anybody else got a guess? 18 what? Oh, you're just guessing. That's a good guess. Yeah, it's 1899, outside of Paris. All right? That was the so-called Red Devil. And uh, he set the land speed record of a mile a minute. Now, it's important to understand that at, at that time, in the 1890s, almost all the cars were electric cars. I know you've seen this movie about electric cars in the last couple of decades, but in, but in truth, in the early part of the 20th century, all the cars were electric. So how did we get to internal combustion? Okay. After the American Civil War, there was an extraordinary number of trusts, monopolies, corporate collusion. There was a copper monopoly, there was a rubber monopoly, there was an oil monopoly, and believe it or not, there was a bicycle monopoly. And there was one guy in Hartford, Connecticut, Colonel Pope, who controlled all the bicycles in the United States. Who could buy them, who could sell them, who could make them. And he did this through patent litigation. I don't know if any of you has ever known a patent attorney, or dated one, or been married to one. But patent litigation has been a big problem in this industry. And so if anyone tried to make a bicycle without his license or permission, he would sue them. Well, the, bad, the bicycle monopoly of Colonel Pope in Hartford, Connecticut, the Columbia Bicycle Company, got together with the battery monopoly. There was a battery monopoly. And the successor to this battery monopoly is now today XI Technologies, the same company that makes the little batteries that goes into your flashlight. The battery monopoly got together with the bicycle monopoly to create the electric vehicle monopoly, specifically the electric vehicle company. And the electric vehicle company in 1899 was determined to set up electric vehicle services all across the United States. They had electric taxi fleets in New York, in Chicago, in, uh, uh, in Boston, all up and down the East Coast. Uh, and they had a whole plethora of electrical um, uh, inventions and developments at, uh, at that time. Well, uh, in the early part of this century, there were a bunch of guys who thought that the electric car was a girly car. Why? Because it was clean, it was just a push button, it didn't smoke, it didn't stink, and stink is important. Stink is important because all the transportation at that time was stinky. Now think about this for a second. How did anybody used to get around at, in 1900? Horses. Manure, correct. And there was a lot of horse manure in this country. There were 20 million horses in the United States, they were doing all the mill work, all the transportation, all the deliveries. The manure was everywhere. The horses were dropping dead on the street every, every day. They had to be carted back. Every time it rained, the cobblestones would run the manure like in rivers, have fun walking across the street in that. <clears throat> and it was a source of, of malaria. Tie that to the fact that the railroads were spewing off cinders and smoke and soot uh, th throughout the domains of the, of, of the railroad routes. And so the clean electric car was absolutely welcomed. But the internal combustion machine, developed by names that you would know now, Cadillac, uh, Leland, uh, Olds, etc., this was a rumble car. This was a smoky car. It was a faster car. It had greater range because nothing beats gasoline for compactness and the amount of energy you can pull out of it. And they also thought it was important because it took a nice hand crank. It took a man to make. And they used to say that the uh, electric car was a, was a lady's car and the internal combustion machine was a man's car. <clears throat> so the um, uh, electric vehicle monopoly bought a uh, worthless patent called the Selden patent. And they told the guys making the internal combustion machines, we're not going to let you make cars unless you get a license from us and pay us tribute. These were 
all American guys. They were building these uh, internal combustion machines in their backyards and in their garages and in their stables. One at a time, they were very expensive. They were uh, custom crafted leather. They were built for aristocrats and for, for presidents of uh, banks and universities. And they said, we're gonna fight you. And so litigation ensued. And after a number of years, the internal combustion machine industry got together with the electric vehicle monopoly to make a super cartel to control all the bicycles, the batteries, the electric vehicles, and the internal combustion machines. And they jointly decided to abandon the clean electric vehicles, the technology that they possessed in favor of the internal combustion machine. And they were going to keep this as a very expensive mode of transportation. And they ran up against one guy who refused to play ball. Now, who was that? Henry Ford, Henry Ford correct. Henry Ford, in 1903, decided that he was going to make an, uh, uh, a Model T. He was going to make a car, a cheap car for $500, a car for every man, not just aristocrats. It was a cheap, stripped-down car, to be sure, but it was basic transportation. It would have revolutionized uh, this country. And um, uh, he's actually the hero of my book to a certain extent. I know it's very hard for a guy like me who has written about Henry Ford as a great anti-Semite and, uh, and a colleague of Hitler, uh, write about him as, uh, as a hero. But Henry Ford was, um, uh, this was a period before Henry Ford became an anti-Semite. This was before World War I. And so I, I had to treat the history honestly. And I should also say here, at the Ford Motor Company, knowing how much investigation I've done uh, about their history, cooperated completely with me without ever knowing what my work was. And in fact, all the automakers cooperate, except for one, uh, cooperated completely with my work. So Henry Ford uh, said, uh, I'm not going to give in, I'm not going to join you, and I'm going to make my cars, and there's nothing you can do about it, and you can litigate to your heart's consent. And they, and these, and the, uh, the, uh, the electric vehicle and internal combustion machine monopoly said, we're going to sue you, we're going to sue your customers, we're going to sue your dealers, and we're going to sue your suppliers, anyone who gets close to your car. And so when you bought a, uh, a Model T from Henry Ford, I'll show you an interesting ad. Can I borrow this? You got not only a warranty, you got a defense attorney. Henry Ford said, anyone who bought his car, here's one of his typical full-page ads in a, Detroit pay, in, a, in a Detroit paper, offered you a defense console just to drive the car. So I want you to understand that these forces are not so much energy-driven as populist, socioeconomic, political. This was a populist movement. And so they fought a horrible litigation uh, for about seven years. I've got the deposition of Henry Ford. Uh, the file's about this long. And uh, in 1911, Ford prevailed. Uh, the Selden patent, which was used to litigate frivolously, was struck, was struck down. And uh, Henry Ford was allowed to uh, sell his car to everybody. The Model T proliferated. Uh, Model Ts were going all over the, the United States. And now there was pollution and soot in not, uh, just, uh, not just along the railroad tracks, but now it was at every intersection and every street. And Henry Ford realized that he had won the battle, but was losing the war. And so he and Thomas Edison got together to undertake a secret project, which has never been written about in the United States. I know there are many biographies and books on Edison Ford. You will not find this in any of them. To return this country to electric vehicles. This is 1912. And they put millions of dollars into this project to develop electric batteries that would be home generated. They would be generated by wind turbines in your backyard or, in a, or a kerosene generator in your, in, in, in your basement. And uh, uh, this is going to revolutionize the country. Well, um, something strange occurred. The forces of internal combustion, the, com the companies that opposed this, were uh, all lobbying against uh, Ford and Edison, asking them not to do this. It was going to obsolete the uh, internal combustion machine. Uh, there was going to be, there were no gas stations at the time. 
and there was a complete infrastructure for swapping out batteries. You'd merely roll the battery over a uh, pit, they would take your, your battery out, swap it out for a fresh one, it would take 40 to 70 seconds, and you could go on, on your way. General Electric had developed a device called the Electrant. It looks like a parking meter, uh, but in fact, it was supposed to be everywhere along the road for the purpose of you would shop, you would park, you plug your car in, it gets recharged. We don't need to rein re reinvent the wheel, ladies and gentlemen. We just need to excavate it from where it was buried 100 years ago. So a funny thing happened. All these advanced batteries in Orange, New, in Orange, New Jersey are in perfect working order when they get shipped to Detroit. They get to Detroit, they don't work. He ships more. They get to Detroit, the engineering tests show that they've been tampered with, they're false, and he's complaining someone is tampering with these batteries, someone is falsifying the engineering reports, and eventually the project dragged on so long trying to get these batteries to work, it was, sub it, it was subsumed. When Edison said he would develop a battery that would be tamper-proof, overnight, his entire compound of numerous buildings and labs burnt down in a mysterious fire, also not written about in any of the books on Edison. And, it, and the ironic thing is that all of his rooms were fireproof, and he had a fire brigade on premises. They never explained the fire, and they were confused because all of the really flammable materials like uh, kerosene and alcohol and turpentine never caught fire. And then came World War I, and that was the beginning of the end of clean electric in this country. <clears throat> now, that's the end of the story of electric in uh, automobiles, but it's not the end of our story of our addiction to oil. Because many of you might remember that this country had electric trolleys. Uh, many of you remember trolleys. Anyone here ever ridden a trolley? Okay, where, where was your trolley? And, and where was yours? Um, let's see. Um, well, there were some in New York, too. New York and, and yours? Boston. Boston, very good. And yours? Montreal. Montreal, very good. Okay. So, there, trolleys were a beloved form of transportation in this country. They were clean. They were electric. Uh, there were 15 million passenger boardings of trolleys in the uh, 20s, Okay. And uh, these trolleys, uh, meet me in St. Louis, they had songs bomb, they were hop on, they were hop off. Every city had a trolley, every, every town had a trolley. Uh, these trolleys were owned by corrupt businessmen who ran the electric utilities. And these corrupt businessmen who ran the electric utilities uh, ran afoul of the FDR administration and the New Deal. And uh, there came a law in 1935, a, a, a reform act, called PUCA, P-U-H-C-A, very aptly named. That's the Public Utility Holding Company Act. And this act required all the utilities to divest themselves of their electric trolleys. So what the utilities did was they began to manipulate the value of these trolleys, began to stop the repairs, deflate the value, and along come Five guys, five uneducated bus drivers, the Fitzgerald boys from Minnesota. And these bus drivers suddenly have millions of dollars in their pocket. They buy up the trolley lines. They, pull, they immediately pull up the rails. They pave them over. They either uh, get rid of, sell off, or burn the trolleys in public bonfires and they replaced them with diesel and gasoline burning motor buses. And this went on city after city. It started in little Galesburg, Illinois, moved to Beaumont, Texas. Eventually it got Baltimore, Tampa, uh, uh, the cities of the West Coast. And finally, uh, the FBI began looking into the mysterious company, the secretive company called National City Lines. And National City Lines, which owned all of these trolleys in some 40 cities, National City Lines, it turns out, according to the FBI investigation, was secretly being funded by General Motors in a criminal conspiracy 
along with Phillips Petroleum, Standard Oil, Mack Truck, and Firestone. And the criminal conspiracy, which has now been confirmed by three branches of government in the United States, the, uh, ju the judiciary, the, the legislative, and the executive, the criminal conspiracy involved buying stock, preferred stock, on condition of tearing up these trolley lines and replacing them with gasoline guz guzzling and petroleum-using um, motor buses. And these buses were stinky, they were belchy, they were smoky, they were, un they were unpopular. And eventually, General Motors and its co-conspirators and its executives were prosecuted for a criminal conspiracy to subvert and undermine through monopolistic practices the trolleys in some 40 cities. They were found guilty, and the corporation was fined for this work. Guess 40 cities down, and they had hundreds more targeted. You may have seen me on PBS late, uh, recently. I had the, the hit list of all the cities that they wanted to get. Anybody can guess what General Motors was fined for undermining transportation in, in 40 cities? 40000 Do I hear another number? $5,000. And their executives, who were also found guilty, guess what they were fined? Anybody want to guess? $100. Who else has a guess? $1. They didn't pay. They, they, they appealed the $1 to Supreme Court. They lost. The case was up, was up, was upheld. Uh, and eventually, uh, uh, this technique uh, spread of its own momentum to other cities. And of course, uh, criminals are not the best guys to uh, run mass transit. Uh, and so the mass transit companies went broke. And when the mass transit companies went broke, they were foisted upon the, uh, foisted upon the, the municipalities. And that's how the municipalities got mass transit, because the private mass transit companies uh, of the early decades uh, went broke in this fashion. Now, what was Ge while General Motors was here undermining mass transit in the United States, fighting F FDR, uh, uh, um, rebelling against the New Deal. What was General Motors doing overseas during the 30s and early 40s? Anybody want to guess? Building trolleys? No. Anybody want to guess? Selling trucks to Hitler. That's right. You read the book. You did read the book. Okay. No fair. That's right. General Motors was the biggest automotive source in Nazi Germany. It wasn't Daimler, it wasn't Benz, it was Opel. GM Opel, which they controlled 100%. And GM made the Blitz truck, which was used for the Blitzkrieg. And they were the leading supplier of this technology. And they also gave tetraethyl to the uh, Nazis to accelerate their, mo their mobility and when Alfred Sloan, the first half of Sloan Kettering, uh, uh, propositioned the Hitler regime about this, he told, he told them, we are not only going to make cars for the Third Reich, we're going to help you recover your entire economy. We're talking about 15 to 20,000 people going back to work. We're talking about buying power. We're talking about suppliers. We're talking about dealers. We're talking about the invention of a gas station network. And we're talking about a brand new invention called the Autobahn. All of this emerging in the first years of the Hitler regime. And that is why it's true, Thomas Watson, the head of, in, of, in, of international business, business machines, got the first Hitler award, the Eagle, for a distinguished service by a foreigner to the Third Reich, but after he got it, General Motors got it. And I know General Motors would like you to think that they lost control of their uh, subsidiary uh, during the war. This is absolutely not the case. Uh, General Motors um, uh, had control right up in, right when the war started in 1939, 6 a.m., September uh, 1st, 1939. They had control. They continued to make these products for uh, the, the Hitler regime, right going through uh, 
1940 and in 1941, the uh, company was put into escrow because of course we were at war with Germany and the uh, native born German managers were placed in the control and after the war, General Motors got all those profits that were held in escrow for them during those three to four years. And you should understand that this company absolutely bonded with the Hitler regime. What I'm talking about is, is patrician pictures of Adolf Hitler on, on the GM cover. We're talking about Hitler speeches being piped in to the, uh, to the, fac to the factory. And we're talking about uh, 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 consistent donations of trucks to the stormtroopers with advertising, the proud sponsors of the stormtroopers. So this was a, so uh, GM was a, a, a good conduct, goose-stepping corporate citizen in Nazi Germany. At the same time, they were doing what they were doing that caused them to be prosecuted for interfering with our transportation here. And it's important to understand who are the companies that are claiming to bring us to salvation to cure our problem. And this is giving you an example. So you know the rest of the story that um, uh, the, the, the Americans won the war and uh, GM was very important to that war. And in fact, uh, the guy in charge of the uh, Nazi subsidiary, Mooney, was uh, one of the key officials who was uh, uh, placed in charge of the uh, war effort for the, the United States. So General Motors had coming uh, and going on both sides of the Atlantic. And so now we want to ask, we have an oil addiction. I'm bringing you up to the present tense. I knew I would bring you up from the pharaohs to the present tense, and here I'm doing, I'm, I'm doing it. This addiction is killing us. It's killing our environment. Cigarette by cigarette, mile by mile, it, it is like cigarette by cigarette. We are uh, unfreezing the ice, we are warming the earth, fossil fuels, and once you unfreeze this ice, you cannot refreeze it. It is killing our lungs, mile by mile. There are microfine particles. Even myself and all the people who came who drove here to hear me speak have done their part to poison the lungs incrementally of the people who, were, um, uh, uh, who are suffering from this internal combustion machine and the American Lung Association and of course the people in the Air Quality District in California have a complete understanding of this as do the major groups who are involved in fighting uh, uh, the environmental impact. We're killing our treasury, our pocketbook. We're killing our pocketbook. Our money is being transferred at a fantastic rate to the Middle East who don't approve of our way of life, to a group of pe people who, in many cases, use our money to buy airplane tickets to fly into the World Trade Center. And we are hurting our very way of life. Now, how do we get off? Okay. First of all, there are solutions right now, there are bridge technologies. We can do things this week, and there are things we can do later. Let's first talk about the CNG car from Honda, okay? Does anyone here know that Honda makes a CNG car? A compressed natural gas car, an oven gas car. Do you know? Anybody here know? Okay. No one knows that. Does anybody know that a gal in Georgia stood her boyfriend up at the chapel and took a Greyhound bus to Vegas and left him waiting there. Do you all know about her? What's her name? The Runaway Bride. Why am I bringing this up? Because on the day that Honda announced their CNG car, mankind's first step away uh, from uh, uh, gasoline stations with a home fueling center right in your garage, you'd never see a gas station again. The Runaway Bride ran away and they weren't covered. And, that's, and it's as simple as that. It was the runaway bride. So now everybody knows what the headlights on the runaway bride look like, and no one knows what the, head, the headlights on the Honda CNG car look like. <laughs> but the fact is there's 5 million CNG cars in the United States, excuse me, in, in the world. 300,000 are made by one manufacturer, and that is Honda. 
And of course, there's a, a home refueling center that can be purchased. And, and so if, if you have a fleet or you have a home usage, you can get off the gas stations altogether. This is not a permanent solution because, as you well know, a CNG is a fossil fuel. It's bad for, for, for the environment. But those who want to get us off of gas stations, those who want us to stop using oil, at least temporarily, could right now develop CNG fleets. And you also need to understand that these 5 million vehicles in the world, who's making them? The big three. They're being made for countries outside of the United States, but not in the United States. Okay, so there's the Honda CNG car. But what's more important than that is the real step. And the real step is going to be plug-in electric. It's going to be true truly flexible fuel cars that can burn everything from biodiesel, which is just uh, uh, anything from French oil to uh, waste oils, to methanol, to uh, sugarcane ethanol, to cellulosic, which is, of course, very important. And, um, uh, and of course, that brings up the question of corn ethanol. Now, does anyone in this room think that corn ethanol is a good idea for this country? Anyone raise your hand? Nobody here. Okay, you do. Okay, and you, and you, and you do. Unfortunately, corn, corn, corn ethanol takes about a gallon to a gallon and a quarter, depending upon the study, of oil and petroleum products to create a single gallon of ethanol. Gallon to a gallon and a quarter. And the uh, refineries are being built at such an extraordinary rate they must burn hundreds of tons of coal. So when they say yellow is green, they really mean it's green for big corn and for big oil. Now, why do I say big oil? Well, that's because for every gallon of corn ethanol that's used in this country, the government pays a 51 cent support subvention to the oil companies. It's your tax money. So it's a gallon of corn, corn ethanol and 51 cents goes right to the oil companies. Now, there's all, not all ethanol is the same. And there's some very good ethanol, including cellulosic and sugarcane. And sugarcane ethanol, you might have heard about it, comes from Brazil at the current time. And it is eight times more efficient to make uh, and use sugarcane ethanol. It can be used as an E100, which means it doesn't need oil. And it's generally made uh, without burning coal with a, with a green, uh, with a uh, environmentally green byproduct called bagaz. And this, which comes from our own hemisphere, is blocked from this country by a 54 cent per gallon penalty tax. Now they say they want us off of oil. Why is there a 54 cent penalty tax on every gallon of Brazilian oil and in, excuse me, uh, Brazilian sugarcane ethanol and restrictions on investment? And just think of the rejuvenation of the Caribbean economies if they could run sugarcane ethanol supply houses there and they could be exporters. And this 54 cent penalty tax on uh, Brazilian sugarcane ethanol, which must be lifted immediately, is not the Bush White House. This is Congress. So when you see your congressman, grab him by the neck and just say, why did you vote, if you did vote, for a 54 cent penalty tax per gallon on Brazilian sugarcane ethanol? And that brings me, in addition to the many other uh, uh, opportunities for uh, alt transportation, to hydrogen. And I think that hydrogen is very much an end game, the final, uh, uh, the final answer to our, uh, to our quest. Now remember, a hydrogen car is just an electric car. Now, how far off is a hydrogen car? A hyd there's two types of hydrogen cars. There's the ICE, that means an internal uh, combustion engine. The first hydrogen car uh, was a bus developed in the 30s in Australia. The first hydrogen um, 
Uh, the first hydrogen uh, vehicle in the United States was a tractor developed by Alice Chambers in 1953. And then a few years later, General Motors had a van. And uh, right now, uh, hydrogen is uh, considered to, to be uh, a great hope for uh, solving our energy crisis. Well, uh, when I started doing this work, uh, Honda and Toyota told, told me about a year and a half to two years ago that the hydrogen car was about 10 years away. And then about a year ago, they told me it was three years away. Three years away. And just a couple weeks ago, I find out that BMW is going to start manufacturing uh, hybrid hydrogen cars. Uh, called the Hydrogen 7. I'm told uh, it's a very luxurious vehicle. It's going to start uh, producing that in December, and they're going to start deploying this fleet in, uh, in, uh, uh, in um, uh, spring. And uh, then in the fall of next year, of, tw of 2007, GM is going to bring out the sequel car, and they're going to start ramping up for mass production for hydrogen for the Chinese hydrogen economy. And Honda may be the end game of all. And Honda is developing the home energy station. They have it right now. It's made by Plug Power, a company in upstate New York. And this will take compressed natural gas, oven gas, right out of your current infrastructure, crack the gas, and generate electricity to fuel your entire home and five cars. And this home energy station is a little bigger than, than, your, uh, air, than your air conditioning unit. And this is about three years away, perhaps two, two years away. Now, it's important to understand that we can do this. Because although you've heard me talking about a lot of corrupt and collusive corporations, the undicted co-conspirator in this whole crisis is the public and public policy. Nobody took a gun to anybody's head and asked them to drive a Hummer, or a Navigator, or an Escalade. But I must ask you, friends, do we really want to dig a hole in the Arabian desert and pull some black gunk out of it and drag it over the dead bodies of Americans so we can power lawnmowers? Why are lawnmowers burning petroleum? Why are people dying for lawnmowers? You want, to go to, uh, you want to go down the street to 7-Eleven and pick up a gallon of milk? That's a very expensive gallon of milk. There's no price that you can put at it. And you must remember, as the people who are sitting around this table know, the cost at the pump is merely the final cost. The true cost of oil is the externalized cost, the full cost, the cost of the military, the cost of the environment, the cost of the uh, State Department, the cost to our lives, the petropolitical cost. Do not discount the petropolitical cost. And no one knows what's going to happen on a moment's notice when the oil can be cut off because of a hurricane in the Gulf or a hurricane in the Middle East. And that is why I have come upon the way we're really going to get off of oil. And it's not because people like you and me can feel good about each other and buy a hydrogen or a methanol or a plug-in electric car. The answer will be in fleets. And that's why me alone launched, with no one's permission, the Green Fleet Initiative. There will be no mass production without mass purchasing. Now, how do we get mass purchasing? Krispy Kreme, 4,500 vehicles. Federal Express, 44,000. United Parcel Service, 88,000. United States government, 600,000 vehicles. The post office says, I want my delivery truck to look square and ugly with the door open and the drivers and the wheel on the wrong side. They will get it. And so what I'm asking everyone to do is to understand that more important than your vote and more important than your letter to the editor is the fax machine. Because the companies that have the power to supply these alternative cars, I do not mean the hybrid cars, which will merely extend our addiction to oil by lengthening out the, 
lengthening out the supply. I mean the non-petroleum burning vehicles. They need the marketplace. Government regulation is not the answer. The answer is that fleets, fleet managers, organizations, county governments, federal governments, uh, um, universities, everyone who controls the fleet, adopt a purchasing hierarchy where you say, we will purchase the first reasonably cost, properly running hydrogen machine, plug-in electric, methanol, Brazilian sugarcane ethanol, biodiesel, non-petroleum burning car. And then the car companies will bite each other in the butt to be the first one to sell you thousands of cars, not one or two at a time, but thousands of cars. Remember the scale. Please remember the scale. There's 232, maybe 240 million vehicles on the street. That is not going to be replaced one at a time. That's going to have to be replaced by a Manhattan Project. And how much was the Manhattan Project? $25 billion in today's money. And how much was the Hong Kong airport? $20 billion. And how much did ExxonMobil make in profits in one quarter? And how much money a week are we spending in Iraq? How many billions a week in Iraq? And so I want you to understand that we have heard a lot of exaggeration, distortion, lies, manipulation from the media, from the government, from big business. But I'm telling you, it can be done if we can understand the history, how we became addicted, what's happening to us be because we are addicted, and how we can kick that addiction a little bit now and better later on. Do what we can t today and improve the situation tomorrow. All of my books, IBM and the Holocaust, War Against the Weak, Eugenics, whatever I've written about, have explored a terrible past so that we could salvage a precious future. And I've written this book to explore a terrible future so that we can salvage our precious past. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, and I'll take any questions that you have. Thank you.